Take your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 1. One of the things that I drive your attention to as we begin today is that uh, one of the little nuanced things about the English language is that uh, there are certain words that you can use that, depending on how you use it, can be a very positive statement or a very negative kind of a statement. And you can use them uh, using the same word in the same discussion to do either one of those. For instance, the word offensive. If you've been watching the news this week, you've seen that the Israeli army is on a major offensive into the Gaza Strip against Hamas. That might be a good way to start. Let me bring it right down to the bottom line. Football season is upon us. Yes. And um, somewhere out in California now, there is probably even right now is my guess, there are a group of guys who wear a star on their helmets, known as the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have a quarterback. His name is Tony Ono. I mean, uh, Tony Romo. Tony Romo is the quarterback of the team, and therefore he runs the offense or the offensive part of the Cowboys football team. Now, that term there, offensive, means both th- both things. He runs the offensive part. Their whole goal is to move offensively down the field and score points. And if you're a Cowboys fan, while they're doing that, they are simultaneously offensive in the way they play football. You see what I mean? It's an interesting term. And so... When we bring that, I want to bring that down to us today, all right? Because the reality is that in churches all across the world, really, but especially America, and let's just bring it down to Lumberton, Texas, in our area, there are churches full of Christians who are offensive. Some of them are on the offense. They hear the commands of Jesus, go and make disciples, the Great Commission we call that. They hear the directives of Jesus as we'll see next week in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends them out on a road trip. And so we get that part of us. As a matter of fact, one of the hallmarks of Baptist and who we are and how we have operated historically is that we even have coined a term for ourselves. We are missional people on mission the offense into a dark world with the good news of Jesus Christ. The problem with that is that some offensive-minded Christians are incredibly offensive in the way they do it. Now, you see, that creates a problem for us because the culture of church and that part of us and the way we think about what we're supposed to do uh, has a way of being so pressing on the offense that we think anything goes in the way we carry that out. That's not a good way to think. Most of us know somebody who is offensive in the way they handle their Christianity. And if we don't, then it's probably just because we're not doing a very good job of reading the signs of the times and the people around us. Have you figured out that in America today, it is not necessarily a compliment when somebody refers to you as a Christian. 
I want us to look at this passage today because it helps us in a number of different ways. But before we get there, I want to just remind you, let's get all on the same page here on why we're having this discussion. If you happen to have wandered in here and you don't know what's going on, uh, over the last several weeks I've been preaching this series. It's uh, kind of every other year. I, I pause about this time of the year and I remind us what we say we are about. Our constitution as a church, that document that we put together and ratified as a body of Christ that says we believe this is how, uh, this is who we are. The bylaws talk about how we function, but the Constitution largely is the one that says this is who we are. And in that document, we have five different statements in answering the simple introduction that says we quote our purpose to be. And these five different statements provide us opportunity to stop every once in a while to remind ourselves what we're about so that we don't get busy doing all kinds of other stuff and lose track of the purpose that we say we're about. And we're on the third one of those. We've looked at the first two. The first one, I'm going to give you the bumper sticker version of the first two. Okay, the, the, we, we boil it down so that it's easier to remember. We've said, first of all, that we're about exalting God. Worship is part of the hallmarks of who we are as a church and what we're to be about. The second one we looked at last week, we say that we're about equipping the saints. And so with that, we understand that there needs to be this ongoing discipleship, this growth and development of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And today we get to the third one. It's the middle point of the whole deal. It's a good place for us to get to this because of the way it fits with what's come before it and what will come after it. And here's what it says. We quote our purpose to be the salvation of the lost both at home and abroad. The bumper sticker for that would be, we are about evangelizing the lost. In Luke, in Luke's gospel, we find this presentation of this physician who is named Luke. It's a, it, it, the fact that we know he's a, phys, a physician is significant for us because in that time, in that part of the world, somebody who had the training to be a physician like he did brought something to the table when it comes to research. And so Luke, the physician, decided he would also be Luke the biographer, and so he writes this biography of sorts of Jesus Christ. We call it a, a gospel. And Luke's gospel gives us the unfolding of Jesus Christ in his public ministry. He starts before that, but he brings us through all the way through the resurrection of Christ. But Luke's gospel is also part of a two-part theology, if you will. And the second part of this work is the book of Acts. And so when we come to the book of Acts in the first verse, it says in the, he just picks up where he left off. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke begins his history of the church, which is what the book of Acts is, or at least the beginning part of that history. He begins by pointing backwards and then bringing those people, the readers that he would have, to that time just before Jesus left and before his history of the church begins to take off. It's important that we get that part 
Because the passages that we're going to be looking at, or the passage we're going to be looking at today, is that middle part. It's the transition from the time of Jesus, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then what happens with the men who followed him after that. Here's what I want you to get before I ever get started today. When we get our purpose right, we will be on the offense. We will be offensive in the positive sense. But when we get that twisted and we get our purpose off kilter a little bit, we become very offensive and hard to swallow by the people around us and maybe even some of us with each other. We're going to be looking in verses 6 and following. I'm going to go ahead and read those now, come back and make some comments as we go. So let's just pick it up in verse 6. So when they had come together, they, that is his disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here's what I want us to get to. I want to talk about this thing that we call evangelizing the lost. I want to take it as part of our purpose. And I want to show you how we easily slip into being offensive in such a way that we hurt the kingdom of God, not help it. Here's the first deal for me. I I, kind of want to start on where we miss it. Because ultimately I want to get us to the point where we understand why we miss it so that we don't miss it anymore. As a church, we must get this right. We would bleed missional living as a church. That's part of how we're put together. We have a missions committee, the first one that was formed after I got here, in order to help us do missional kind of work in a better way as a church. But we can do the right thing in the wrong way and be offensive in the way we pull it off. So we need to get this right. So let me talk generally and not so much specifically for just a second. What's the news much? Hello? Hello? Anybody out there? This week, it might have been last week, I'm not sure really, but within... This the past couple of weeks, there was a news article, video news article, um, about a carjacking that was uh, foiled. Did you see that? It's where this lady was in a car with her kid, or kids maybe, and uh, some guy decides that he wants her car, and so he jumps into her car, and I think he pushes her off to the other side, and he jumps in like he's going to drive off in her car. Did you see that? Because some of the bystanders, some of the other men standing around there saw that and they decided to get involved in this. And so what I saw was as this guy's in the driver's seat, somebody's videotaping it with their cell phone while it's going down. And so this guy's sitting there and he's about to drive off and some other guy jumps in the seat behind him and puts a chokehold on him. And so he's pulling him backwards while two other guys are reaching in the driver's side door and trying to pull him out. It was an incredible video. I love it when white, when right, Wins over wrong. 
Unfortunately, as I was watching that, I was also thinking about some of this series. And it dawns on me that much of the way we, as Christians in the modern era, do evangelism, we become the carjackers. The anatomy of that particular news story was that this lady was going about her business and some guy decided that his agenda was more important than her agenda. And so he inserts himself into her world in a violent kind of a way and he attempts to have his way. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the way churches have done evangelism over the last 25, 30 years? We find creative ways to do that. We jump in on somebody's day. We bring our own agenda into it. No matter what they're doing, no matter what's going on, we insert ourselves into their position and we need some kind of result to come from that. Is that what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about us being his witnesses? <laughs> you know, um, I had a... Let me, let me see if I can put this... In such a way that help you understand a little bit. Because I, I think we're the carjackers more often than not. We have our nice little packaged ways of doing evangelism. Many churches will set aside a night of the week and they'll have visitation. We should call it carjacking. Because we're going to go out into somebody's life, into their agenda, and we try to pick a night when they're at home so that we, you know, make sure that we can get them, and we insert ourselves into their situation, whether they knew we were coming or not, and we call that positive. They call that an intrusion. Happened with me. When I went back to the church I served, I was down there for 20 years and in three different staff positions, and when I got back after I was youth minister for several years, Left for several years. The church called me back as assistant pastor. I went back as uh, assistant pastor was over education and administration, which put me right into that part of the life of that church that started up while I was gone during that three-year period. And in that three-year period, that church had decided that what they really needed to do was to get on the uh, on the uh, the bandwagon for this um, carjacking scheme. <clears throat> called Evangelism Explosion. Now, some of you have probably heard about that. Um, Baptists are not necessarily um, innovative people, and so we tend to take stuff that somebody else thinks up, and then we rebrand it and call it our own. And when I was in seminary, uh, I had to take and, be, and get certified in CWT, Continual Witness Training, all right? That is another way of saying we stole the idea of evangelism explosion and brought it over and put a different name on it so we could sell it. Not that I'm being, you know, skeptical or anything, but that's just kind of how it went down. And so I get back to this church and this church had decided that they're going to do evangelism explosion. Uh, and I didn't know that. I was certified in the Southern Baptist ripoff brand of that, but I didn't know this one. And so I had to go in as the trainee. And so I'm assigned to these two guys. Now, one of these guys is about six foot four and uh, was a carpenter by trade. He was just, a, you know, kind of one of those man's man kind of guys. Uh, the other guy had been a bomber pilot in Vietnam. Okay, so he was kind of like uh, intense, right? And so I'm with these two guys. Here's this wimpy preacher and these two guys. And so we're going and we, they get assigned to this place. Now, here's the problem. One of the problems with this uh, carjacking scheme is that they didn't have anybody who had said, hey, 
You need to go see my friend. By the way, there's a problem with that whole idea there. But that's what they typically would do with EE. Turn in people's friends' names that need to visit, and we'll send our God Squad hit team over there, and they'll go see them. And so here I am with these guys, and they don't know what they're going to do. We don't have anybody to go see. One of them says, I know what we can do. There's an apartment complex over here. Let's go carjack. Wait a minute. That's not what he said. Let's go make some cold visits. So we did. The scenario is that we walk up to this small apartment complex and this small apartment in it. And the guy knocks on the door because he hears the TV going. I want you to remember carjacking where we're forcing our agenda on somebody else. He knocks on the door. The guy opens the door. Now, that's how I know that he's not from or in southeast Texas. Because if you come knocking at my door with three men standing there like that, if I open it at all, you're going to catch a Glock right in the face. But the guy opens the door. And he looks up at these guys, including me. And we're standing there, and he says, uh, can I help you? Now, it's about that point of the conversation that I lose track of what he's saying because I look over his shoulder. Now, this is in 1900 and probably 95, I'm guessing. And over his shoulder in this small apartment, I see the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. It filled up half of the wall of his little apartment living room. It's huge. Now, it was kind of like that we use, you know, all the time nowadays. But back in that day, it was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And on that TV was playing a professional basketball game. And so I'm thinking, because I'm the spiritual guy in the bunch, right? I'm the staff member, and I'm thinking, oh, who's playing? <laughs> These guys, cold visit. The guy opens the door. And immediately, our guys start in with the EE spiel. And there's a set of questions that they train you to ask to make sure that you get in the conversation well. And so now I'm back off of the basketball game and I'm watching what's going on. And this guy's sort of answering the questions, but not exactly. They finally get to a point where they think that it's an appropriate time. And they say to him, hey, do you mind if we come in? I don't know what possessed the guy. He opened the door. We all went in and sat down. This huge TV is right in front of us. The guy's wife, who had been sitting there with him, disappears into the back room. And so now it's him and three strangers. And our guys are starting to go through the plan. Carjacking. Now what still lingers with me is I was positioned to watch this guy as he's talking to them, he positioned them where they sat with their back to the TV, which means that while they were talking to him, he was looking over their shoulder and watching the game. And yet, our guys continue to go through the pre-programmed evangelism presentation. Maybe... We should have a little more respect for people when it comes to sharing life with them. We're good at carjacking. All kinds of plans. We've done CWT and EE and faith and we've done lay renewal training and all of those kind of, I've sat through hundreds of hours of that kind of training stuff. I had to take classes in seminary so that I could even graduate that taught me how to do that stuff and teach our people how to do that stuff. Here's something that we should hang on to gimmicky kind of evangelism 
is offensive to people. Evangelism should never be reduced to some kind of a formula where we're trying to move these people to accept our agenda going into it. Did you hear what I just said? Because that's if, if you believe there's any credence to that at all, it sets you apart from half of what Christianity believes these days. Evangelism is a critical part of what we do and who we are. But gimmicky evangelism is offensive. And one of the reasons it's offensive is because the people that we're trying to take the good news of Jesus Christ to recognize that what we're doing is we're going through our little checklist. And we're not meeting them where they are if we're not careful. And so what happens is we approach it like a an attorney would approach a jury. And so I'm going to lay out these facts for you. And it's like the open arguments... Of this attorney as he's dealing with his jury before the trial. And he says, well, when this is all said and done, I'm going to show you without a doubt that this is true, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and then, and then they step back and they just start progressing through each of these pieces that we train people to throw out on the table. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't work because occasionally you'll find that it does. But it's offensive if that's all there is to it. And we've got to do better than that. So the question as we transition into the better way to look at it, I think, is why do we do it that way? Why is it that we've bought into an entire system that real people, people outside of the church, don't really appreciate? Let's look at a couple of things tied to this passage. I want to take you back to verses 6 and 7 and thereabouts. Look, look at verse 6. So when they come together, they ask him. That is the disciples are asking Jesus. This is that time period now after Jesus has been resurrected and he's been walking with them and teaching them. He's about to go, as we've already read through this, he's about to exit stage up. And before he goes, he has some things to say to them, but they're the ones who bring it up. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? Interesting the way they say that. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're looking for, by the way, this is one of those things that really gets in our way when we try to get the evangelism part of our purpose right, is our agendas get messed up. And they're bringing their agenda to the table. These guys still don't get it. They think that what Jesus is doing here is to overthrow the Roman government. And by the way, they now are his followers. So if Jesus becomes king and the Romans are kicked out, these 12 guys get to be the what's what of the bunch. There are 11 guys at this point. So they're ready for that. Kind of fits with that part. And we find as he was walking along previously and, and these guys were talking and he pushes the issue with them and they lay it on the table what they've been talking about even though it's embarrassing to them. And, and then a mother comes up and says, she puts it just right there on the bottom shelf for all of joy. Would, would you promise to make my two sons the right and left hand of you in your glory? In other words, my boys should be numbers one and two in your kingdom. That's the question. They're saying to Jesus, okay, you've done all of this and you you raised from the dead. And so is it time now? Are we fixing to be in the money? Notice what Jesus does. The ultimate slap down. 
Jesus said, I'm going to put it in my terms. This is verse 7. I'll put it in my terms. None of your business. Mind your own business. He says, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so Jesus gives them a charge. And this is verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what's the word there? Witness. No matter what translation you have, I think it's the word witness. You will be my witnesses. And we as good Baptist missional people, we embrace the word. We will be witnesses for Christ. We take that seriously. And we should. This part of our purpose, as we stated in our Constitution, is a critical part. We must be His witnesses. But this sets us up for some of the problems, I think, because we let that stand alone as if it's the only piece of the equation. It's not. I want us to know a couple of things here. This is a post-resurrection gathering of Jesus and His disciples. What we find them doing here is talking to him. They're trying to make sense of everything that's done. And just before he leaves, he leaves this critical charge to them. Be my witnesses. Let's talk about the term first. What is a witness? See, here's how we tend to take it. We take the be my witnesses... And we kind of embrace it in such a way that is easy for us to embrace it. And I know that there's going to be a little bit of splitting hairs, but stay with me. It's easy for us to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be your witness. And then we go out over here and we do things that we think help us be good witnesses for him. All right? And so whatever that happens to be, I'm, I'm putting it in terms of the collective church, the community of faith. Because as Baptists, our community of faith has had terrible innovative approach and so we just borrow stuff and we come up with all of these nice little schemes to get people in so that we can get some hired hit gun kind of a preacher or evangelist we call them interesting term these guys pull on themselves i will be the guy who goes church to church and i will do the work of the church for you i'll be an evangelist so you get them in and i'll get them saved that sound biblical to you? Well, sort of. I know there are passages like in Ephesians where evangelist is listed as one of those places, one of those guys, but it seems kind of gimmicky to the world. So let's come back to it. It's not just about being his witnesses. Actually, the, a better way to look at that word that's used there is you will be witnesses of me. Now, this is where I think you may think I'm splitting hairs a little bit, but let me show you what I mean by that. I can be a witness for Christ and avoid being a witness of Christ. If we are witnesses of me, as Jesus says here, well, let's do it this way. Let's look at these disciples. What is it about Jesus they have witnessed? Let me just give you a few. Right? These are the same guys that he's talking to here 
who were in the boat with him, or actually, the truth of the matter in this particular case, is he wasn't in the boat on this occasion. Remember that story where they're out in the boat and they're fighting, and it's night and it's storming and all that kind of stuff, and they look up across the water and what do they see? They see Jesus walking to them. How's he doing that? He's walking on the water. All right, now here's our problem. One of the things that we really have to watch out for. We know the story so well that we make those kind of statements and we move right on to the next thing. Stop for a second and realize what I just said. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. How often have you seen that? And so Simon Peter, what does he do? He got to get in on it. So Simon Peter says, hey, let me join you. To, you know, you know the disciples are going, shut up, Peter, shut up. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter crawls over the side of the boat. I've been in some bad storms on boats. I ain't crawling over the edge, okay? That boat may go down, but I'm going to be in it when it goes down. He crawls over the edge and he starts walking to Jesus. Do you hear that? We don't see that kind of stuff. Even with all of of the great technology we have and all of the great strides that we have as Americans and as world people of this day and age, we still don't see people who figured out how to walk on top of the water. And yet that's exactly what these guys saw Jesus do. That in itself gives you something to talk about if you're a witness, doesn't it? Can you imagine the discussions of these guys after that event? They get back to the shore and there are people standing there and you know they're coming off of that but going, you're not going to believe what we just saw. And people go, I don't believe that. The reason is because nobody does that. Or the time that Jesus is out there in the boat, he's asleep and it's storming, what does he do? He calms the sea. You see how easy that just flows out of our mouth? Well, Jesus woke up and he calmed the sea. You try that this afternoon. Let's make it easy on you. Get into your bathtub, put a, don't get in, just put a bunch of water in it, make the waves go back and forth and stand over it and say, peace, be still, see what happens. We don't have the ability to do that kind of stuff. And yet these guys watched Jesus do that kind of a stuff. They were part of what was happening. Let's pick another one for you. How about the time that they're on? These are a lot of these are just kind of grouped together in this period of Jesus' life. How about the time that he's up there and all these people are following him around and it's time to eat? And he says to his disciples, you feed them. <laughs> I hate it when Jesus brings the truth of the gospel home to us and says, use it. Because it reveals our lack of faith. He says, you feed them. They say, well, we don't have enough money. That sounds like a finance committee of a church. I don't have enough money to do that. Jesus says, what does he say? What do you have? Interesting question. Well, we got these five loaves. No, five fish, two loaves. What is it? Okay. So he's been, he's got stuff. Okay. Sack lunch. That works good. Thanks. So he uses this. And so this kid brings it. He said, use this. You know those disciples are looking at that going, you got to be kidding me. Look at these thousands of people out here, and you want that? To, you feed them. Jesus says, okay. And so everybody eats. What do you think those disciples were saying to themselves while they're picking up the leftovers? I ain't believing what I just saw. Let, let me, that's right. Let's take another one. 
Let's take another one. Okay, and I'll finish with this. I just want to give a good flavor of what it means when he says, be witnesses of me. These guys had pegs, mental pegs, to hang that on. How about the time that Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus? Well, it really wasn't even the funeral by that time. By the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead. Let me make sure you get the full sense of what's happening. Jesus purposely waited until Lazarus died. When he says, let's go, his disciples say, we can't go back there. They're going to kill us. That would be like today, some Israeli saying, we're going to go into Gaza Strip this afternoon because my friend died over there. And those people go, you've got to be nuts. Those people are trying to kill you. So Jesus said, let's go. What do you think was the discussion among those disciples while they're walking to where Lazarus' body was? And they're going to kill us. But they follow. And so they get there. Put yourself in the crowd, one of those disciples, and Jesus standing there at the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come on out. Now, if I, I got to be honest with you. I, I know your faith is probably a lot more developed than mine, but if I'm sitting, standing there in the crowd and Jesus saying that to a dead guy been in there three days at least, I'm going to be saying, you got to be nuts, man. What are you talking about? Come out. What do you think they thought when they see Lazarus come running out in grave clothes? While they're waiting for that to happen, you know they're looking over their shoulder looking for the guy sneaking up on them with daggers. You see, these guys are real people. They lived real lives. And they walked with Jesus while he did these real miracles. And so when Jesus stands on this hillside, the Mount of Olives, and he's about to go back to heaven, and he's already promised the Holy Spirit's going to come. Go read John 17. You'll catch all of that. And he's promised that to them. And he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send one. And in this chapter, he's saying, that one is coming. In the meantime, you wait, but you, when he gets here, will be witnesses of me. They didn't need a bunch of gaming kind of evangelistic strategies because they had an experiences with Jesus that allowed them to step into the real world and tell people this is real. So Martha, Mary Magdalene, those people who were stigmatized by society who Jesus had touched, tax collectors, demonics that had been healed, all of those people who had been part of the periphery of society at that time that Jesus reached out and touched them and gave them life and gave them meaning and took them through the storms of life, those people then stepped into the mix when Jesus said, be witnesses of me, and they had something to say. They didn't need some gimmicky kind of evangelistic plan. Just tell them what Jesus did for you. See, we've complicated that in churches. I think one of the reasons we've complicated it is because we've messed up the first two of these points of purpose. Let me say it to you this way. I wrote it down so that I would make sure and get it right. So I'll just read it. I'm almost done, so hang with me. Pulling the last two points of purpose into this one. When you respond to your own encounter with God appropriate way, in appropriate ways... When you respond to your encounters with God in appropriate ways, that's the worship part. You remember that? Your life will reflect the presence and the power of God in tangible ways. That's the equipping part. 
as you encounter God and the appropriate response is to surrender all of yourself to him and then you invest yourself in him and he begins to grow you and develop you in your spiritual life. And instead of just becoming an older Christian, you become a maturing Christian. When you do those things, that will draw people to you. This world is craving life. The people that you work with, maybe the people that you live with, the people that are in your neighborhood are living lives that are marked by desperation. And it hurts to be alive. And the longer you live, the more of those hurts you stack up. And before you know it, everything seems to be so negative that life just doesn't taste good anymore. But God, by his design, gives us life. Take your bulletin. You have your bulletin there? Look at again at our vision statement. Because our vision statement reflects all of these points of purpose. In that bullet, I didn't bring mine. And you know, I don't have that memorized. Crestwood is a connected community. Is that right? All right. That. All right. Stop right there. That's last week's sermon. Crestwood is a connected community that produces disciples who meet regularly for vibrant worship. That's two weeks ago sermon. Right. We do those things. And then what does it say? And then disperses into the communities of southeast Texas with the Roman road. So that we can smack people over the head with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not what it says, right? What does it say? Who disperse into the communities of southeast Texas sharing life. In other words, witnesses of me. Not me. Jesus saying, that's the passage. You see what I'm saying? I believe... Now, I'm I'm becoming an old man. I believe that one of the reasons Southern Baptists are a declining denomination is because we stopped helping people be witnesses of the true life that Jesus Christ can give and we opted for gimmicks so that we could get bigger churches. And I think God said, I'll just use somebody else. Because that stuff, the gimmicks, the sharing the message without having the life yourself is offensive. The world around us doesn't want our religious rules, our denominational tags, but they cannot deny the life that comes in Jesus Christ. So when you begin to live as a disciple of Christ and worship becomes part of your everyday life as we've talked about for two weeks now, those things begin to bubble out of your life every day, every step that you take. And you become, um, you become attractive to people. I don't mean that in any way other than the best possible way. People recognize and are drawn to life. This week, let me show you how that works. This week, I had multiple meetings and several, quite a few counseling sessions. And several of those counseling sessions grew out of uh, relationships that people in our church have with 
people not in our church, people in the world who are hurting desperately. And the reason they came to me was because they knew people in our church who represent Christ for them. And they said, you know, so-and-so, uh, and, and I talked to them about my problems because they, they, I just loved them. And they suggested that maybe it would be a good idea for me to talk to you. That's it, folks. Okay, it's not about me being involved. It's about us living the Christian life with such vibrancy in it. That the lost people of the world and the hurting people of the world see us and they're drawn to us because of that. Now, when they are drawn to us, we must point them to Jesus Christ. There's the witness. It's amazing the economy of God at this point. We work so hard to try to figure out how to do evangelism when God says, just walk with me and live. And I'll do the drawing for you. That's the Holy Spirit part of this. We get us distracted with our own agenda. Are you going to restore your kingdom now? We get stuck in the past. The last few verses here, these guys stand there looking up in heaven. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? And the angels smack him upside the head and say, did you not hear what he said? Get busy. But see, we just like to sit around and talk about how great it used to be with Jesus. I remember when I was in youth camp and Jesus met me there and I saved Really? How, how long ago was that? Well, it was about 94 years ago. But I believe he'll save you too. Well, what happened in your life for 94 years? Here's a problem. We take this verse, verse 8, as if it's a command. You be my witnesses. Now, I've talked about it that way today. Tried to twist that a little bit so that we don't get by with the way we tend to look at it. But the reality of it is that this word here, the verb, is not a command. It's a future. You will be my witnesses. That can be taken as a command, and I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. But here's the reality of it. The fact of the matter is, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses. You are going to be my witnesses. The fact of the matter is, you if you call on the name of Jesus Christ and your friends know that you're a Christian, you are a witness for him. Now, you may be a hostile witness for him. Those people around you may say, well, that's a Christian over there, but they sure don't have anything I want. Then you need to start asking yourself, am I being a witness of him or just carrying his name. But the fact is, as we walk with him, the Holy Spirit empowers us and enlivens us and drives us through every day of our lives, we will be witnesses sharing life. You know, there's a lot of offended people out there that may never go to church because somebody witnessed to them. Under God, would that not be true of us? Let's pray. And as we go to prayer, I want to drop the lesson, the message right in your lap. What do you do with it? This same Jesus who did all of these incredible things, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead so that you could have life. First question is, do you have that life? I would be a terrible witness of him 
If I didn't give you the same opportunity that he gave every person he ever met while he was walking on this earth. What do you do with Jesus? He said to people regularly, come follow me. Are you a Christ follower? If not, today's a great day to start that process. Many Christian people really don't bother following him so much as they just adopted his name. Is that true of you? Are you a follower of Christ? If not, today's the day. Just come down. I'll pray with you. We can talk. Maybe you've carried the name, but you've not been a follower, and you know that needs to change. Today's the day. Make a change. Under God, this church must be, we quote our purpose to be, we are about taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need him. To whom are you giving witness these days? Is there life in what you're sharing? We have to do that. We have to get that right as a church. We're committed to getting that right as a church. What do you do with all of this? Stand. Father, take this time. Use it for your glory in the lives of your people. Change hearts. Change lives. Right now is our prayer in Jesus' name.